Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. We've discussed how the path to the Second Seminole War was paved with tariffs, land grabs, broken treaties, and a fundamental misunderstanding on the part of the U.S. government about who the Seminole were. For its own convenience, rather than deal with more than a dozen different bands of Seminole tribes, the U.S. government created the political fiction of a unified Seminole nation. In fact, the Seminole comprised many disparate tribes from different backgrounds and cultures. Although loosely aligned throughout the Florida Territory, their primary unity came from opposition to forced removal west to the Oklahoma Territory. The commanding general in Florida, Duncan L. Clinch, had dealt with Seminole for more than a decade. They liked and trusted Clinch. He knew that if he could not convince the Seminole by force of personality and reason to remove peacefully, they would be most difficult to remove through war. Despite unrest and scattered Seminole violence against sugar plantations in East Florida in the latter half of 1835, Clinch held out hope to secure an agreement. He amassed a military force to march from Fort Drain to meet Seminole chiefs in the Withlacoochee region of Central Florida. He intended to awe the Seminole with his army strength so that the Seminole would, in his view, recognize resistance was futile and that they should prepare to pack their bags and leave Florida on waiting transport ships in Tampa Bay. And if the Seminole rebuffed his last peace overture, his army would crush them and deport the survivors. Clinch failed to recognize the Seminole had a vote in this proposal and that they had other ideas about the removal policy. Namely, they would refuse to leave and would rather fight by force of arms to the last Indian than give their consent. In this episode, we're focusing at least as much on General Clinch himself as on the Battle of Withlacoochee. This is altogether appropriate considering our guest this week. Autodidact, living historian, and military reenactor Jesse Marshall returns to the Seminole Wars podcast to review how the cold peace between the Florida Seminole and the U.S. government exploded into a hot war with the U.S. Army in 1835. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Glad to join you. How does studying the history of the Second Seminole War and General Clinch's part in it help us understand what happened back in the 1830s? And how does that compare with present-day approach to history? You can't make heads or tails out of modern history by the news. It's designed to demoralize and confound. It's only once all of the actors are dead that you can really poke through the forensic remains of documentation to figure out what was really going on. You have what they say, but then what were they voting on? This sort of thing. It's not easy to figure out. As Phillips pointed out, I can't find a lot of information about the Federalists in Georgia because after the Federalists tanked, different counties conveniently got rid of all the voting records. No, I can't tell you how many people voted Federalist in 1799, you know, you know that sort of thing. And that, that goes throughout the country, by the way. Jesse, in some quarters, you're known as General Clinch. Why is that so? I use General Clinch for my email, and I do so principally because I currently live within a few miles of what was known in the 19th century as Clinch's Battlefield, or the Battlefield of Withlacoo 
Bucci, in which action General Duncan L. Clinch attempted to overwhelm and subjugate the Seminoles in December 1835 to effect their removal to the West. The battle with Lacucci, he displayed an extraordinary degree of personal courage, which was inspiring to his men, even under the worst circumstances. He passed away in 1849. And considering that there is no particular monument or marker of that battleground, I just decided to use General Clinch as an email moniker, so I live so close to the scene of those instances. Jesse, General Clinch had been commanding general of all the military forces in Florida for over a decade on the eve of the Second Seminole War. How does he fit into this overall picture? Prior to the conflict, when the treaties of Payne's Landing, Moultrie Creek, and then Fort Gibson were established, Clinch had some authority over these incidents, but particularly in the early 1830s, in the removal treaty of Payne's Landing and then the Fort Gibson Treaty out west, in which the federal government considered that the Seminoles had officially traded their Florida reservation for the western land. When did Clinch take overall command of the forces in Florida? Clinch became the commander of U.S. regular army forces in the Florida Territory after its accession by the United States in the early 1820s. In that period, he acquired a roughly 2,000-acre property known as Old Lang Syne, south of Micanopy, and before the Seminole War of 1835 commenced, he utilized that plantation's facilities to construct Fort Drain, which was his headquarters at the opening of the war, constructed a stockade fort on the grounds around some of the existing buildings on the plantation. And it was from Fort Drain that Clinch's first operations were conducted against the Seminoles. The only other major military post in the region was Fort King in what's now Ocala, and that was the site of the Federal Indian Agency for the Seminoles. And there was a military post there, denominated Fort King before the war commenced, and only fortified at a point where Seminole resistance was obvious. How key a player was General Clinch to the government's Indian removal effort? of the early 1830s. The federal government relied upon General Clinch to remain in active duty in Florida at least through the period in which the Seminoles were removed, saying, we need you to stay long enough to see this through. Seminoles have signed these removal treaties. We need you, who have worked with them over 15 years, to convince them of the need to remove West, along with Wiley Thompson, the Indian agent. And the Indian agent Thompson, of course, was killed the same day of Massacre. Had General Clinch had his way, he would have already been retired, and some other general would have been handling the opening of what became the Second Seminole War. How is it that he wasn't able to retire? Now, General Clinch, as early as 1833-34, had made a determination to retire from active duty. He had been on active service since 1808, and he had a large family, and he had developed these plantations, and he, as the owner, he wanted to concentrate upon them. The government refused to allow him to resign in 1833-34, So he made the determination to remain in active service so long as it took to remove the Florida Seminoles in 1834, and of course the Seminoles did not accede to that removal. How many Seminoles overall would General Clinch have had to negotiate the removal for? Total population of Seminoles within the entirety of the territory was four to six thousand, so the numbers were never large. How did the Seminole and Mikasuki tradition of democratically deciding whether or not to go to war complicate General Clinch's undertaking. 
the political fiction of a unified Seminole nation aside, General Clinch understood the difficulty of subduing the tribes if war broke out. There would be no one big battle against the Seminole nation. There would likely be a series of battles against individual tribes. How prescient was he in this analysis? In 1835, Clinch himself reported that he thought more likely than not the Seminoles would resist, not necessarily by fighting, but by just hiding wood. What are you going to do then? In one of his letters, he commented, says, you may be able to fight a battle, but even if you do, how do you bring them all to battle at once? Because you could defeat the Miccosukis and the Seminoles proper, the Tallahassees might be somewhere else. And nobody was even thinking about the so-called Spanish Indians in the Everglades, who nobody thought about until the war pressed into that region in 39, 40, and they became active in the war. Quite a nasty surprise when they did. Would you say General Clinch was expecting a battle or not? Well, he certainly tended to fight a battle if it came. But if you read about the early republics dealing with the tribe, just the strong show of force, the invasion of several hundred armed men into the reservation might have been enough to have McAnopi and the others come forward and say, well, uh, okay, we're heading to Tampa because the transport ships were already waiting. At Why would they think the Seminoles would do that? Well, again, they had been a particularly warlike or troublesome group to the United States government in the decade or so prior. There was conflict. There was legal wrangling over various issues. One thing that General Clinch had in his favor was that he was not General George Matthews. Matthews, our listeners may recall, was the former governor of Georgia and the emissary from the Madison administration who tried to convince the Seminole not to take the Spanish side in the so-called Patriot War. He was abrasive and demanding, and his actions served to only alienate the Seminole. In contrast, General Clinch's personality was one that may have positioned himself as maybe the only person who could have staved off the Second Seminole War by successfully reasoning with the Seminole that removal was in their best interest. He was not a controversial man, and he didn't cultivate controversy. Rembert Patrick, his principal biographer, noted that Clinch, well known for having no ill words for anyone, he had worked well with all of his commanders over 30 years in active service. He was well thought of at the time by the U.S. government and his own soldiers. Despite the government's best efforts at enticing or cajoling the Seminoles through the persons of its Indian agent, Wiley Thompson, or its commanding general of the forces in the Florida Territory, General Duncan Clinch, the Seminoles remained defiant. And the seven-year Second Seminole War took place. So General Clinch was frustrated in his hopes that he could at least overawe the Seminoles or convince them of the necessity of removing peaceably in 1835 and 36. When it was evident that war was in the offing, it was General Clinch as the commander of U.S. military forces in Florida, working with the Indian agent, Wiley Thompson. It was Clinch who had charge of what military forces were available, perhaps 500 regulars, perhaps another five to 600 efficient Florida militia. He had the overall command, and in December 1835, he was forming a plan of operations to subjugate the Seminoles by marching from Fort Drain to the cove of the Withlacoochee River, where he understood the majority of the Seminole resistors were ensconced. Because he was concentrating his forces at Fort Drain, he had drawn off most of the garrisons at St. Augustine and at Fort King. There was only a single 
company at Fort King, maybe 30 or 40 effective men, and it was orders that he had cut before the emergency had really gotten out of control for companies landing at Tampa Bay to proceed through the Indian nation along the government road, which we now call the Fort King Military Road, and reach and reinforce Fort King. There was no communication between General Clinch at Fort Drain and Tampa Bay because as hostilities increased, it became evident that the mail riders could not make it through. Communication was open with St. Augustine, although it was a torturous route of roadways and river travel. Clinch, in the aftermath of his operation, attempted to clarify that one reason why it established his main post at Fort Drain rather than at Fort King was that it was easier for him to communicate with Fort Drain by road with Micanopy and other settled points where there was some degree of civilization. This is a claim that he made, although there were critics of General Clinch that felt that his establishment of the headquarters at Fort Drain was purely self-serving in the sense that perhaps by doing so, he had assured the military protection of his own large-scale plantation while many of the other farms and planters in the region were left entirely unprotected. In fact, as the war commenced, there were literally hundreds of small farms and plantations in North Florida and along the Seminole borderlands that were backed or destroyed or abandoned by their owners as the war commenced. But if the small federal force under General Clinch just happened to be ensconced right in the middle of Clinch's own property. So there was little threat to his investment. Now this is the way some critics put it at the time. But again, General Clinch claimed that logistically it was a better position than establishing Fort King as his primary headquarters for the Florida force. How did Clinch's plantation and Fort Drain fare in the Second Seminole War? His plantation was abandoned in the late summer of 1836 as a military post, and it was occupied by a large Seminole party. And in the late summer of 36, a small command of U.S. troops attacked and surprised the Seminoles and camped on the plantation. And it's said by some that one of the leading Miccosukee war leaders was killed at Fort Drain. The plantation itself was largely demolished by the Seminoles and by neglect during the war years. Around the time he was preparing to set out from Fort Drain. General Clinch expected a force from Fort Brooke to be moving for the relief of Fort King. He did not suspect that that column would never arrive. In late December 1835, he was unaware that Major Dade's command of two companies of artillery in transit from Tampa Bay at Fort Brooke to Fort King had been ambushed on the 28th of December and destroyed. Also that same day, the Indian agent Thompson at Fort King, as well as Lieutenant Constantine Smith of the 3rd Artillery and several other citizens about that place, had been killed by a party led by Osceola. General Clinch was marching his force to meet the Seminoles in the vicinity of the Cove of the Withlacoochee. Just as those incidents were transpiring, destruction of Dade's command, Clinch himself marched south of the Withlacoochee with several hundred men, hoping to engage the Seminoles to conclude the war in one blow. Had no relief party departed Fort Brooke en route to Fort King, the Seminole forces General Clinch faced might have been even larger. How might that have changed the outcome? Well, that is, of course, an excellent question. We have to assume that would be the case. Now, whether or not the Seminoles would have brought a larger force in the field is hard to say because uh, the Seminoles didn't have a military system. It was a tribal system where war leaders or Tustanogis, particular men who were notable for their war skills, would raise a party for a particular expedition or for a particular purpose. There was an emphasis placed upon engaging in war, and each warrior would get his war name 
name to replace his childhood name at the point at which he distinguished himself in battle or in war, not necessarily in battle, because unlike the U.S. Army, the Seminoles, the Salvation Indians, they didn't look upon war as consisting essentially of combat, raiding and expeditions of that kind consisted of war as much as battle. The United States Army, of course, considered battle to be the ultimate effort, that if they could bring the enemy to battle, like at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend in 1814, General Jackson ended the Creek Indian War in a few hours in that action. And the Battle of Bad Axe in 1832, the Sauk and Fox were subdued in a bloodshed Bad Axe that ended that conflict instantly. If General Clinch had the opportunity, he would have engaged in a similar combat that would have ended the Seminole War instantaneously. The difference was that the Seminoles were not numerous, and secondly, they had a vast territory to hide in. They didn't need to fight any battles. They could have just kept moving. Clinch's march is often confused to be a punitive expedition to punish the Seminoles for the ambush and annihilation of Dade's column around the same time. However, that surprise attack happened unbeknownst to Clinch, who had his own reasons for heading out to meet the Seminole, and they were not necessarily to do battle. That is correct. It was not in retaliation. It was an expedition to overawe the Seminole. It was not at all clear to either Clinch or even Major Dade or anyone exactly how many Seminoles actually intended to resist. And and perhaps not even the majority, because when we look at Dade's battle, we have the account of Chief Alligator that only about 180 warriors muster to attack Major Dade's command. We see that three days later at the Battle with Lacucci, from intelligence gathered subsequently by Henry Prince and others, that the Seminoles, or more properly, the Miccosukis, mustered about 300 warriors for the Battle of with Lacucci, and Osceola was present in that fight against General Clinch. We will investigate the intricacies of the actual engagement between Clinch's forces and the Seminole. For now, though, please give us a brief summary of what happened in the Battle of the Withlacoochee, or as I would prefer to call it, the Battle of Clinch's Crossing. He reached the Withlacoochee River on the morning of December 31st, 1835, and he found that he could not ford it. The river was over 150 feet wide. He then ordered his men to commence crossing in a leaky Seminole canoe that was found nearby, and it took them almost four hours to ferry the 200-man regular battalion across the river, and then they commenced crossing the Florida Volunteers. They were mounted volunteers, so their horses had to be crossed as well. In the midst of that attempt, the Seminoles attacked the regular battalion. Clinch was on the south side of the river with them, and in a roughly one-hour combat, four of the regular soldiers were killed, and several dozen of them were wounded. General Clinch himself had several bullets pierced his clothing. The fight was rather exhausting. Seminole casualties are not clear, perhaps a dozen or so, considering the different accounts. Soldiers themselves claim they found at least nine seminal bodies on the ground after the firing concluded. But with a large number of wounded men among a 200-man battalion of regulars, Clinch was forced to withdraw. His force recrossed the river with the wounded and carried them back to Fort Drain, essentially defeated. As he moved out, General Clinch's heart was clearly in the right place. But he doesn't seem to have planned very well for this operation. He knew he was going to be crossing some rivers, but he didn't bring boats, and they had to rely on a leaky Seminole canoe. This all sounds very strange. Well, General Clinch had his critics again, and uh, no. None more so than Richard Keith Call, well known as the territorial governor of Florida as well as a general of Florida militia. And Call was commanding the Florida militia brigade with General Clinch on the occasion of the Battle of Withlacoochee, that December 31st, 1835 event. And General Clinch, in his official report, criticizes Call to a slight degree that he was unable or unwilling, it's not clear which, 
to force the passage of, say, even 100 or 200 of his Florida volunteers over the river during the battle to bring them into the combat. A general call during the battle was not sitting on his hands. He and a number of his men were cutting down trees and grabbing logs, and they were piling logs up along the river to create a bridge. There was a rocky island in the middle of the river, roughly, near the crossing point, and Call and his men were trying to form a footway of logs so that they could rapidly move across. Uh, the combat ended about the time General Call actually rode up onto the battleground with maybe 40 or 50 more Florida troops. But the bulk of the Florida volunteers had not crossed by the time the decision was made to withdraw. Although he'd never seen active combat in his long career, General Clinch displayed a great deal of bravery and leadership at the Battle of with Lacucci. Tell us about that. At the Battle with Lacucci, there was a critical point where the regular troop, that 200-man battalion with 30 or 40 men already dead and wounded laying among them, that the troops withdrew and there was some confusion. And General Clinch dismounted his wounded horse and he stood in front of them under fire and he gave them a harangue. He ignored the gunfire and was telling them, that, reminding them they had to do their duty and that he was going to die there if he had to, but he wasn't going to retreat. And that also he was, he was going to shoot down the first man that tried to Throughout the battle, the regulars were not exactly engaged with great aggressiveness or enthusiasm to take the fight to the Seminole, either when the leaky canoe was ferrying them across to the other shore or once they got back. Thus, his harangue of the troops was not impulsive at all. He had very good cause to do so. Eventually, the soldiers were mostly dispersed in skirmish lines, although Bemrose says his comrades told him that since many of the officers were already wounded and whores do combat, as they used to say, that many of the men just sat in the bushes drinking from their canteens filled with whiskey rather than firing back. There's actually a, a statement, how accurate it is, I can't say, that in the hour-long firefight, the 200 regulars had fired something like 1,000 rounds back at Seminole. So if we average that out, it's about five rounds a minute. Now, in training, the soldier could fire his musket three times a minute on parade ground condition. So then you have to say, well, how do you explain the battle with Lacucci when if every man fired an average of five rounds and they could have fired those five rounds within two minutes, what did they do in the other 50 minutes or so? The anecdotes Bemrose provides give us a good idea that the fight was somewhat more skirmish-like than otherwise, you know, that they were not formed in the regular battle order very long, that once they suffered the casualties and realized the situation, they dispersed, and through most of the fight, the units were moving back and forth in skirmish lines, and most of the men, as Bemrose says, were content to just sit behind cover rather than engage, and Clinch had enough of that, and that's when his notable harangue took place, which the, the young officers, almost all West Pointers, were really impressed by that. The post-war war of words over the battle, mostly regular officers, they were, and many of the Floridians that witnessed it, because there were 30 or 40 of the Florida soldiers in the line with them by the time the battle started. And while the whole operation doesn't smack one of great military success, they all mentioned the clinches harangued to the troops at the point at which they were losing their discipline. It was really quite extraordinary. When it came to discipline, in general and at with Lacucci, the Seminoles were both ill-disciplined and, in some respects, highly disciplined in firefights. Please explain. 
firefights. They would engage in them as long as they saw some advantage in it. Seminoles were not disciplined soldiers. As one officer at, with Lakuchi says, they were under a, a shower of Indian bullets, but very few were actually hitting anyone. And that's probably because they were so excited they were firing wild. They were just reloading in the woods and running up. Compared to Western tribes, however, the Seminole were quite disciplined. One officer says the Seminoles were far more disciplined than some of the Indians that he had fought in the north, in that at Withlacoochee he saw them advancing by squads or platoons, is what he calls it, but small groups would reload and come up as a group and fire all at once out of the edge of the swamp, and he was really impressed, even in small groups, they would work in concert in combat. His experience fighting Western Indians had been that they were purely individualistic in combat. Clinch's heroic conduct caught the attention of Major General Winfield Scott, who later had some complimentary things to say about General Clinch. When Clinch finally did leave the service at the end of April 36, Scott says the Army's losing one of its best commanders. I think what Scott was impressed by about the Withlacoochee incident in that battle was that Clinch said, before I'll allow these regular troops to break, I'll die myself and I'll shoot down the first man that runs. You can see where Scott would have viewed Clinch positively. Here's a guy that was willing to put his life on the line to preserve the chivalry of the Army. He began to use that term. Many people have never even heard of the Seminole Wars, and for those that have, the only thing they know about it is that there was this famous Indian, Osceola, who was the Seminole War Chief and led them in stubborn defiance for seven years. In truth, Osceola was captured in 1837 under a flag of truce and later died of disease, or so the reports say. He was also not the leader of the Seminole, or even the Seminole War Chief. Osceola himself led only a few former Red Stick Creeks when they went into battle. And yet, he seemed to be a quite influential figure among the Seminoles. Why was this? Osceola may have only led seven or eight men as their actual leader, but he was very influential. And early 20th century American students of the Seminoles inquired of Western Seminoles about what they knew from their grandparents about Osceola. There were comments that Osceola was understood to have had powerful medicine in battle. And that may be one reason why the Seminole, he was so notable in combat, even if he was not actually leading. How did this manifest itself at the Battle of Withlacoochee? The leader in the U.S. Army since was the guy in the front. Some of the officers of Clinch's command said that during that fight, they saw Osceola. They saw him behind a particular tree that he was coolly firing and wiping out his rifle and giving particular war cries. And he was wearing the uniform coat of an army officer, perhaps taken from Lieutenant Smith's corp from his attack on Fort King a few days before. But because Osceola was so foremost in the fight, assumption by the army was that he was their leader. Whereas, again, we have some very decades later, the second, third hand accounts that, well, he wasn't their combat leader. He had powerful medicine that inspired them. Tell us about these Seminole medicine bundles. Seminoles, each warrior would have carried medicine. The Seminole tribe today, I believe, still had some of the medicine bundles from some of the bands that survived the Seminole War and remained in Florida, and I believe the Seminole tribe in Florida had some of those medicine bundles. Some historians and investigators in the mid-19th century, when they talked to the Seminoles and Mikasuki about these, the medicine, that there's their version of what it means is not dissimilar from what, say, Leclerc Milfort describes of the war medicine in the 1790s. There was medicine that would allow them to ambush their enemies successfully, it would make their enemies susceptible to their gunfire, medicine to protect them from the enemy's return fire. While Osceola was undoubtedly influential among the Seminole tribes, you argue that a different Seminole was the most influential. 
Who was that? I would argue that probably the most unifying figure we can find historically among the Seminole resistors is the Creek prophet Otolki Flacco, frequently mentioned later in the war as being a leader, a, a significant figure among the resistors to the removal. Before the Battle of Okeechobee, December 25, 1837, Alligator, again, a principal seminal combatant in the war, told Sprague, again published in 1848 in Sprague's book, Florida War, Origin, Progress, and Conclusion of the... He told Sprague that before the battle, the Cree prophet Pucky Flacco was making medicine and singing and dancing on the beach of the lake for the warriors to prepare them for combat. In the Seminoles' War of 1835-42, there are several references to the Seminoles fighting practically naked, uh, maybe just wearing their loincloth and moccasins and painted red. This, this is also described by Milfort in the 1790s among the Creek, although Milfort says it wasn't necessarily purely ceremonial, but that the Creeks had long discerned that if you were wearing dirty clothing when you suffered a bullet wound, the wound wouldn't heal. But if you had bare skin when you suffered the wound, it would heal better. And that was even American medical treatises on gunshot wounds mentioned that. When the, the bullets strike, they often would force the clothing into the wound. Since the bullets of the time being propelled by black powder, they had a relatively low muzzle velocity. There's reference to sometimes the men's shirts wouldn't even be pierced. They would actually be forced into the bullet wound, and the surgeons sometimes could just pull the shirt out and withdraw the bullet. That would be rare. Often, though, pieces of fragments of the dirty clothing forced in the wound would force infections. And in fact, one of the survivors of Major Dade's battle Private Ransom Clark is said to have suffered immensely from a wound in his lung, and that at a certain point he began to recover slightly after he vomited up a quantity of blood and a piece of his coat that evidently had been forced into his lungs by the bullet. The Seminoles had a combination of practical and you know, essentially religious practices regarding battle. The Seminole reenactors, they do not customarily fight stripped or painted. They wear generally the everyday or ceremonial dress of the Seminoles. I recall some years back a comment by some of the Seminole reenactors explaining to me they don't want to wear the war paint and everything because any real religious or cultural practice involved in it is not completely understood rather than mimicking it they just don't do it. The alligator does say that when Osceola was wounded in the arm, it was, that's when the other warriors decided to retreat. So perhaps the Seminoles may have looked at the situation different than soldiers did in terms of the tactics. The point at which Osceola, if he had this powerful medicine, which by this third-hand account say that bullets would go through him, that he couldn't be harmed by bullets, and here he was harmed by a bullet. Well, that could be demoralizing, couldn't it, if the most powerful medicine holder of battle medicine is injured and the rest withdraw. So Seminoles retreated precipitately from the Battle of Withlacoochee, and again, Clinch was able to cross the river without being harassed. There was some yelling, but no firing, and of course, with the troops filing across that footbridge, General Call had the immediate command of the withdrawing force. They expected to be attacked at any minute, and it could have been disastrous if those men on the south bank, who had all harried and running out of ammunition, if they had panicked, that could have been disastrous for them. The Seminoles did not attack, and so General Clinch, in his report, says essentially that the Seminoles must have been thoroughly flogged by the firefight, by the combat. But looking back from Alligator's account, which was published in 1848 in Captain Sprague's History of the Florida War, and looking at some information the Seminoles understood about Osceola and passed on to their descendants, that they may have just retreated simply because Osceola was wounded in the arm, not because General Clinch's command had outstanding.
outfought them. The Seminole withdrawing because Osceola suffered a combat wound stands in stark contrast to what would have happened had, say, General Clinch been wounded in the battle. Tell us about that. There's a distinction in subordination. If Clinch had been critically injured or disabled or even killed, the command of the Army would have immediately fallen on Brigadier General Call of the Florida Volunteers. The soldiers would not have withdrawn simply because of that, and the fight would have continued. Clinch, his life was spared, even though uh, he was a big target in his battle at Withlacoochee. And again, there's reference to bullet holes in his clothing, and his horse was shot, but he came out of that fight untouched. And there was a point in time where he supposedly commented after one of the bullets pierced his clothing that, I do believe those fellows are firing at me. And he did so rather coolly, and it seemed to be almost humorous to the men around him, many of whom were being stricken by painful wounds. It was actually the first major combat that he'd ever been in, even though he'd been in service for almost 30 years, and so that was considered significant. Prior to the war breaking out, his wife died of disease in Mobile, and made worse because Clinch had promised her that once he wrapped up the Florida situation, he was going to retire and come home and be a family man. And of course, that never was able to happen because she died of disease in spring of 1835, just as it was becoming evident to him that the Seminoles were not interested in cooperating in the removal of the way that the treaties suggested. After General Clinch, we had General Gaines in charge of removal operations. And then we had General Winfield Scott in charge of removal operations. And then the federal government actually had second thoughts and wanted to put General Clinch back in charge. The federal government was offering Clinch full command in Florida once again. In other words, while they had essentially repudiated his plan of operations in 1835, insofar as they did not provide him the exact number of troops that he claimed he wanted, although there was some argument about that. The government at this point, by the late spring of 36, said, well, we'll essentially give you the command again. Well, Clinch was tired, and it was evident that the removal of the Seminoles would be virtually impossible within a reasonable point of time. And so he submitted his resignation again, uh, which he had done two years earlier, and this time he was a damn it that he was finished with the military service. At least financially. Clinch would be doing better in civilian life than he would be on active duty. See, he had the 2000 acre sugar plantation in Alachua County, and he had essentially management of his wife's family's rice plantations in St. Mary's, Georgia. So his military pay was insignificant compared to the news that his enterprises were generating. General Clinch didn't have an enormous long-term influence in Florida. After he resigned, he went back to North Florida on the Atlantic coast. And so the federal government turned to the man who had been ostensibly General Clinch's deputy when he fought in the Battle of Withlacoochee. General Call, the Florida militia commander, the governor of Territorial Florida, and in late 1836, he took command of the federal troops in Florida, and he's most notable for his operations against the Wahoo Swamp area of the Withlacoochee War Zone. The battles at Wahoo Swamp are rather large and well-known, but he himself was replaced by General Jessup near the end of 1836. Apparently, once he did retire, Clinch faced some public backlash for his conduct at the Battle of Withlacoochee. After his retirement, there was a lot of fallout about the Battle of Withlacoochee in the press because... Call and Clinch fought a war of words for quite a while in the various papers in Georgia and Florida, and some national papers even picked it up, where Call was stung that, why didn't you cross your volunteers across the river? Why didn't you get them across the river in time to help Clinch's regulars in the fight with Lacucci? And Call would write these lengthy claims that it was Clinch's fault for actually 
crossing his force piecemeal in the enemy's country without a bridge. Call says we should have built the bridge first and then crossed, but of course there would have been no surprise. Suggestion comes out that not knowing if the Seminoles are even in the vicinity, that they cross quietly on the canoe. Uh, and they didn't know there were any Seminoles in the vicinity until the attack commenced all at once from a cypress swamp adjacent to their crossing point. According to Alligator, the Seminoles were waiting for Clinch to attempt a crossing, but they had waited at a point where they assumed the troops were going to come and actually ford the river. But where Clinch's guides brought him, the river was not fordable. So in a sense, Clinch was able to carry out a sort of a flanking movement, but because he couldn't bring his whole force into action, it didn't have much effect, and he was essentially defeated. Tactically, the battle was considered a victory, and so he was well considered by many of even the Florida men that were in that operation, just not General Call. And Clinch later entered politics. Call was in politics, and so they butted heads occasionally in the press over the battle with Lacucci and who could really use the laurels for political advantage in the decade that followed. With no intelligence concerning the Seminoles' whereabouts, whether to cross by a rickety old canoe or build a bridge of logs really comes down to a judgment call. And as you mentioned, they could have done that, but then they would have lost the element of surprise. Maybe Clinch's tactical judgment was not so sound, but we do know that his strategic judgment was spot on about the troubles with trying to subdue the Seminole. General Clinch warned that the army should not expect to wage one decisive battle to defeat the Seminole and secure their removal to the Oklahoma Territory. But rather, he advised it would be, as we say today, one long, hard slog. How did he make these views known to the War Department? That was his argument when he gave his testimony at the Scott Gaines Inquiry at Frederick, Maryland in 1836, after his retirement, essentially. He stated that in his view, there was no military incompetence involved in the failure to subdue the Seminoles because he didn't view military means as being the primary or best means of resolving the situation. He felt that the time to have worked things out was before the violence occurred if the Secretary of War had provided a much larger military force so that perhaps Clinch might have not only held the outposts around the Seminole reservation, but may have actually established outposts within it, but not necessarily as a war measure. General Clinch's warnings were heard by the army and by the various generals who came down to command after General Clinch retired. Yes, that's essentially correct. And uh, General Scott says he relied on Clinch's expertise to an enormous degree during his operations. And of course, they failed. And he was somewhat vindicated by General Jessup, who by 1838 wrote the government after the tremendous battles at uh, Okeechobee and Loxahatchee. Jessup was forced to admit that the Army's operations and the government's policy of military enforcement of the removal was essentially not work. It hadn't worked and it didn't have any view of working in the near future. Jesse, as we started this podcast, you mentioned how you have General Clinch as your email monitor in part because of his heroic conduct at the Battle of Withlacoochee, but also because there's no markers to General Clinch or to the battle in the vicinity of the Cove of the Withlacoochee. Tell us some more about why. 
Well, I think that in large measure it's because the population of Citrus County is not familiar with the battle. There is some historical notice of the Seminole War in this community, namely the Fort Cooper State Park. The population here is largely made up of folks moving in from other states and a constant turnover. Also, Battleground itself is largely developed, seems to lie in the vicinity of where State Road 200 crosses the Withlacoochee River, largely private property, long subdivided in that vicinity. And there is more development going on there in the last 10 years, gas station, some uh, other facilities. However, there is some swift mud property that includes part of the property. There's a canal that runs south of the river, which may or may not actually have been dug through a portion of the Seminole or Miccosukee fighting position during the battle. Also, there hasn't been any thorough archaeological research to confirm the site. In 2003, I visited the battlefield with a few friends. We went into one of the small buildings that was a small business on as soon as we walked in, the gentleman at the desk said, yes, you're on the battlefield, and no, you can't dig here. And we found it very amusing because we didn't come to dig. We are just historicling, as we used to call driving around a historic site. But that told us a lot. In other words, there have been avocational relic hunters have been digging bullets on the battleground for quite some time. People had dug musket balls and bullets in the immediate vicinity. Also, since a major road, which may or may not be expanding in the future, laying right through the battle site, that's another issue in itself. It's not a question of being too remote to have a marker for clinch or the battle. I wouldn't say it's a remote site. I might have said that 25 or 30 years ago, but there are residential houses ringing the battleground and there are businesses essentially have been built within the prairie or the open ground, which appears to have been where General Clinch and the regular battalion were essentially positioned according to the maps produced in 1835 and 36 depicting the battleground, as well as the descriptions of the ground by Lieutenant Henry Print in his field note for map making contained in his published diary. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that in the future there could be a marker commemorating Clinch and the battle in the area. Well, I think that certainly would be possible among the businesses on the site, one on the north side of the river and one on the south side of the river that are laying on portions of the ground occupied December 31st, 1835. They each are relatively popular, so there's people visiting that area quite continuously. So a historical marker would not necessarily be unread. There is some speculation on the exact site of the battleground, some places somewhat further west than where 200 crosses the river. However, I'm sold on the river crossing area, principally because of a couple of period maps that show the Seminole position in the Cypress Swamp being backed up by a creek. From all evidences, one looks at the aerial maps from the 1930s, etc., that creek appears to be what's now been dredged into a canal running due north and south off of the river. And now there are private homes just west of it. Evidently would have been the boundary of the swamp which the Seminoles were occupying during the fight of December 31st. 1835. Clinch sent his men over in a leaky canoe. You don't have to use a leaky canoe. I'm just wondering if they could do reenactments. In that area, is there a good spot to ford properly? Is there an area where public could come by to view it? Well, anything's possible, but because the majority of the property along the river in the vicinity of the battlefield is private property, that would have to be something that would be worked out. The landholders, without knowing exactly, I don't get the impression that the properties along the river stream there are particularly large, perhaps half an acre at most for the majority of them. So it's already largely been subdivided in that immediate vicinity. However, there are portions of the river that are less developed. There is a boat ramp just west of the 
the battleground, and it's a very popular boat ramp. So there's a lot of boat traffic on the river as well, even though it's not very wide in that vicinity. So it's conceivable, maybe even using that boat ramp, but first there'd need to be an archaeological survey done to identify and confirm that this actually is the area. Uh, so far as I know, there has been no real archaeological investigation on that particular spot, consequently no scientific confirmation that that's the battlefield. But uh, I predicate my conclusions largely on the cartographic map evidence compared to the descriptions of the ground by participants in the battle, as well as Lieutenant Prince's maps and field notes in his published diary. Compare those to modern aerial photographs from the 1930s, and I think it becomes pretty obvious. But you see, I'm not a relic hunter myself. It's a popular hobby, but since it appears that relic hunters have already dug the battleground, they would have found it pretty much the same way that anyone would by looking at the maps and reading the accounts. It's not a hidden battlefield by any means, but to have it officially recognized for public commemoration would probably require professional archaeological investigation and then notice to the state of Florida's master site file that it is a particular archaeological site potentially, although limited to a single day, again December 31st, 1835, when four U.S. soldiers were killed and over 60 wounded and an unknown number of Seminole and Miccosukee warriors in the Battle of Withlacoochee. So although it was a very intense battle, it was only for a short period, about 45 minutes in length. It's not as if there had been a camp and there had been soldiers there for some period of time. And then nobody built a fort near there for any number of years. And so there's no more additional, say, archaeological material that would come up. And then you combine that with relic hunters, it may be more difficult to find some of the things that one's looking for. That's correct. There was Stokes Ferry, which was in the 19th century, I understand, along the river. But you'll see from the Seminole War itself in the mid-1830s on, a principal or favorite crossing point by the military was near Camp Isard. So there's going to be a significant amount of evidence of the firefight by Gaines's force along the river there at Clinch's Crossing, which, of course, would be separate from the Battle of Withlacoochee itself from a couple months prior. Also, some potentially good news, many avocational hobbyist relic hunters are not necessarily interested in bullets. Many of them are more interested in finding military insignias like buttons with the eagle insignias and belt plates and things of that nature. Bullets are just little lead balls and they're not particularly valuable and they're not particularly interesting. I've talked to some relic hunters who say that they don't necessarily like digging battlefields particularly because they know they're not going to find much more than bullets. So so there's a possibility there's quite a few bullet artifacts laying about the open grounds in the vicinity. So that would be the means of determining the exact position of the battleground, simply confirming it archaeologically. Why should there be a marker, either to General Clinch or to the battle or to both? My own opinion is that the battlefield should be marked, if for no other reason, to commemorate the sacrifice of the U.S. soldiers that fell there. We have their names, four men killed and the 60 wounded, of whom some died subsequently, and an enormous effort by the Seminole and Miccosukee, of whom a number fell in the combat as well. And we know Osceola, probably the most famous Seminole warrior of that era, was among the wounded. But also, a marker on the battlefield would be valuable to the historical tourists. Visiting the Central Florida area, you, you can see the date battlefield of December 28, 1835. You can then pass over the Withlacoochee River. You can see the marker of the Wahoo Swamp Battlefield 
from late 1836. Driving north on 41 from there, you could visit Fort Cooper, the fighting area from April of 1836. And if you were to continue further north to the Withlacoochee River, a historical marker at Clinch's battlefield would be a marvelous idea in the sense the traveler of the Central Florida roadways would then see that this conflict was not limited to a single battle or a single campaign, but a series of interrelated actions. And Camp Izzard's battleground is not really open to the public, but has been to a certain degree preserved somewhat west of Clinch's battlefield. Going back to January, February of 1836, the eyes of the United States and the press were concentrated upon the Withlacoochee River, where a relative handful of Seminole and Miccosukee warriors and their families were ensconced to resist the Indian removal policy of the United States. And from December 1835 through March and April of 1836, the Withlacoochee River was essentially the front line of America's conflict over the future of the peninsula of Florida, essentially, and its future development. Why is this something of a forgotten battle site? As we mentioned, it doesn't even have a marker. Casualties were painful out of the 200-plus men that were strongly engaged on the south side of the river. 65, roughly, were killed and wounded. And that's a pretty striking casualty rate. But that being said, there's only four killed. I would have to hazard that when you compare that to just three days earlier when Major Dade and 100 men were killed, it draws all eyes off of the effort by Clinch's command on the banks of the Withlacoochee a few days later. Compared to the massacre of Dade's men, yep. Compared to the loss of life from Dade's column, the casualties from this battle were much less significant. What were some lesser reasons? Because the troops themselves did not use Clinch's crossing as a particular ford, it just became sort of a map point with the cross sabers showing a battle there. There were lots of military movements along the Withlacoochee in the next few years. Troops would pass over the battleground, but it was always in going to somewhere else. There was another Fort Clinch actually built west of the battleground on the river that was occupied for quite a while during the war. There's a depot, troops passing from there down toward Tampa Bay on the west side of the Withlacoochee. would become familiar with Clinch's battleground, but unless they were participants in that fight, it didn't seem to really warrant a great deal of commemoration. Keeping that in mind, Clinch's single fight on the Withlacoochee pales in comparison as a significant combat, but if you look at the totality of the military action on the Withlacoochee River in those first few months of the Second Seminole War, it forms a strong component part for the Seminole struggle, particularly to preserve the Withlacoochee River as a permanent, potentially, boundary against the expansion of the United States, and also as a boundary that U.S. troops were struggling to force their way across in order to subjugate the Seminole and carry out the removal process that was put in place by the Payne's Landing and Fort Gibson treaties just a few years earlier. One thing that may come into it is that he really shouldn't have been trying to cross there. There was a ford, and the Seminole were actually waiting for them at a fordable location, but he didn't find it. So he saw this, he saw a a small boat and said, well, let's try to use this and get over. But it wouldn't be a place that anyone was normally trying to cross. Evidently not. Now, there is some reference that somewhere in the vicinity of his crossing point was a, not really well described, but evidently a point where it appeared that cattle had been forded across the river by the Indians in prior times. And if I'm not mistaken correctly, there was reference to a cattle pen on the north bank. Again, Clinch wasn't necessarily personally convinced that the Seminoles were intent upon resistance. His goal was to find, locate the bulk of the Seminole and force them to proceed toward Tampa Bay for removal. He had written that he felt that the time to overawe the Seminoles 
had been in the period prior, but because he was not provided with the military resources to do that, he had to go with the forces that he had at hand. General Call, for example, mentioned that crossing the river by such a tenuous means was somewhat ridiculous by dividing his army by the river. It made the action very much stressful for the handful of regular troops. They had nowhere to run if they had been overwhelmed until the point at which the log bridge was finished over the rocky island bisecting the stream. And by the time that was completed and a few more of the volunteers crossed with General Call, the fighting was essentially finished and it was decided to withdraw. So you cannot use the campaign of General Clinch as an example of military genius by any means. But as I mentioned, what seems to have inspired his men, those that appreciated General Clinch a great deal in their later letters and comments, as well as comments of his superiors like General Scott, was that he himself was foremost in these efforts. He crossed the river pretty early on in the day. He was on that side of the river when the fighting started. He was under fire throughout the action. So his extraordinary valor on the occasion of the battle, if it is possible, seems to be what retained his reputation despite the failure of his military operation. There was some adjustment in the sense that once General Scott was deployed elsewhere to remove the creeks in Alabama in the late spring of 36, Clinch was offered the command and to carry out the plans as he saw fit, but it, he had already pointed out that once active warfare commenced on a large scale, military means alone would be, in his view, the worst means of attempting to force the removal. And so rather than beating that dead horse, he resigned, and a succession of other commanders then did their best and essentially concluded the same, one after another, for the next seven years. Had he found the right spot? With the Ford, things might have turned out much worse for him because the Seminole were in wait. Because they used the canoe, the Seminole had to react and then move their forces over. The other thing, I believe, is since it was not a fordable area, then troops were not coming through in the future, and so it could be relatively forgotten. That is accurate, so far as I can discern. In the main fight with Lacucci, Clinch's battle, the 200 regulars who, by the way, were commanded by Major Alexander C.W. Fanning. They were, by the period of count, formed about, about 300 yards south of the riverbank, was where that line was formed, fought bulk of the combat at Clinch's Battle. Near the riverbank, you're going to find a lot of potentially bullet evidence considering Gaines's firefight there. It was either on the February 27th or the 28th of 1836. Can't recollect off the top of my head. How is Clinch remembered today? His only pop culture depiction really is in the movie Naked in the Sun from the 1950s, which was a Florida-based production by a Florida producer named Hugh, writer, producer, director. It's based on a Frank Slaughter novel about Osceola. The, the picture is available on VHS, so I don't know if it's on DVD, but it was a rather negative depiction for General Clinch. However, from my recollection, for whatever reason, the producers of the film changed his name to General Finch with an F, perhaps out of respect for General Clinch because they wanted to make the military commander character a much more villainous fellow than, by most accounts, General Clinch was. Everybody described him as a man who never had an ill word for anyone, whether they were his slaves, whether they were Indians, or whether they were his political rivals or his military superiors, you know, etc. Jesse Marshall, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Well, I enjoyed it. I don't find that much occasion to discuss it.
Well, today you have. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.